Psalm 103. I am going to read the entire psalm this morning. It is 22 verses, and then I'm going to preach. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand, please, as we read Psalm 103 together in honor of the reading of the Word of God. They stood for hours uh, when um, the prophets used to, to read the Word of God. So that's why we stand in honor of the reading of the Word. Let's look at verse 1 together and read through verse 22. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. For He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, So great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. And His children to children's children. To such as keep His covenant and to those who remember His commandments to do them. The Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you His angels who excel in strength, who do His word, heeding the voice of the word. Bless the Lord, all you His hosts, His ministers, you ministers of His who do His pleasure. Bless the Lord all His works in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let us pray. Lord, we do bless You this morning. We pray. We pray our worship is authentic. God, we know that there is a must, that those who worship You must worship You in spirit and in truth. And Lord, this morning, we pray we have done that. God, we have experienced Your presence. We feel You here, Lord, this morning. God, I pray now that You would anoint me with the power to preach Your Word. God, I pray that You would make the preaching this morning easy. I pray that You would anoint the ears of these hearers, God, that we might hear Your Word. God, I pray, Father, that You have Your way with us, Lord, that for just a moment in the busyness of summer, God, that You would help us to pause here for about 30 minutes. And God, that You would help us to just tune our ears into You. Help me to preach as a spiritual man to spiritual people. God, we pray this morning we'd leave changed. Not just challenged, but changed. God, we pray that if there be any here this morning that are lost, Father, that if they were to die today, would spend an eternity separated from You. Father, we pray that today they would come to know You, for we know that today is the day of salvation. God, I just pray, God, You would do what only You can. Father, blow the roof off of this place today. Shake the ground underneath of us, Lord. Speak to our hearts, God. Change us, Lord, from the inside out. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. I want you to look at a statement in verse 2. Forget not all His benefits. Forget not all of His benefits. That is a command. It is a statement. It is a suggestion, if you will. It is something you have to do. Forget not. Why does the Word of God tell us to forget not? The answer is very simple. Because we are prone to forget. We do forget. We forget His benefits. We forget who we are in Christ. We forget the authority that we are to walk in. We forget that our God has all things in control. And I'm here to tell you this morning, the reason that we forget is because we have an enemy that wants us to forget. We have an enemy that doesn't want us to know the benefits of being a child of the King. We have an enemy that wants us to forget. And the reason that he wants us to forget is because he knows it's true. He can't forget it. He knows that he knows that he knows that he knows that our God is powerful, that our God is in control, that our God is able, that our God loves His children, that our God would do anything for His sons and daughters. He can't forget it. He has experienced defeat time after time after time again. And He knows just how powerful your God is this morning. And He wants you to forget what He cannot. There's an enemy who does remember. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, this enemy who is really an enemy of God and all that, that God loves and all that God is, this enemy, the Bible calls Satan, this, this enemy that we uh, fight, thought that he had diverted God's plan when he got Adam and Eve to sin against God and, and to break the one single commandment that God had told them not to break. But after the fall and after this had happened, God shows up on the scene and He makes a prophecy to the, to the enemy. He makes a prophecy to that old serpent. And He says to Satan himself that there will be war between the seed of the woman and your seed. And He said this, He said, He, that being the seed of the woman, will bruise your head and you will bruise His heel. Satan understood that prophecy to mean exactly what it did mean, that the heel of the Son of God would smash the head of that serpent, that one day he would be destroyed. And for years, thousands of years, Satan did everything he could to stop the plan of God. He tried to kill the promised seed. We see Cain rise up and slay Abel. We see that somehow, some way, Satan had caused this world to become so incredibly wicked and full of evil that God's only opportunity to fix things was to destroy the world through a flood. And when all the world was evil, and when all the world was corrupt, there was one man by the name of Noah, and God defeated Satan through the flood. Satan does not give up. We see the entire Hebrew race under the slavery of Egypt, under the control of Pharaoh. And then we see God had Moses. Out of all the plans that Satan has put together to somehow stop and keep the promised seed of the woman from coming to fruition, time after time after time again, the devil watched himself be defeated by God. We see the spies that God had sent in to the Canaan land. Ten of them come back with fearful hearts saying there's no way we can go. There's no way that God can set us up as a victorious nation. And we see that fear 
had somehow paralyzed these men, but God had Joshua and Caleb. I'm telling you, God always has a remnant. We see that Haman, that wicked, evil man, he went to the king. He said, these Hebrew people are parasites. They need to die. They are a threat to us. And with the king's orders, the king and Haman put out an order to kill all and annihilate the Hebrew race. But there was a woman by the name of Esther, the Bible says, who was raised up for a time as this. Because God always wins. Because God will not be outsmarted by the enemy. Because God is in divine control. And I'm here to tell you this morning, the devil knows it. He remembers these things. He has not forgotten that he has been defeated time and time again. He has not forgotten that he is being defeated today. And he has not forgotten that he is going to lose the war. After all of his failures and the Lord's victories, the seed of the woman was born and the Son of God had come. And for three years, after Jesus stepped on the scene and announced, I am the Son of God, I am the Messiah to come, for three years the devil plotted with the Pharisees and with the scribes and with the lawyers of the day to find some way to put the seed to death to find some way to destroy the prophecy. And after three long years, He succeeded in that plan, collaborating with mankind, and there hung Jesus on a cross. But I'm here to tell you today that what took the devil three years to do, God undid in three days, and Jesus rose up from that grave, defeating the enemy. And I'm telling you something, Satan has not forgot. He knows the benefits of being a child of the King. He knows. He just wants you to forget. Because when we forget the benefits of being His, it doesn't make us no longer His, but it causes us to live in a delusional world where we think things are worse than they are, where, where hopelessness begins to, to creep in, and it's really not hopeless. And so the devil is out to destroy your peace and your joy. He's out to destroy your belief in God. Satan has persecuted the church since the resurrection of Christ, since the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. But one thing that he knows is that God has won the battles of past, God has won the battles of today, and God is going to win the war. He knows it. I'm here to tell you this morning, He just doesn't want you to know it. In Isaiah chapter 36, I'm going to turn there and then come back to our text. In Isaiah chapter 36, we have possibly the single greatest record in all of the Word of God of the enemy taunting God's people. In Isaiah chapter 36, verses 4 through 21, an enemy is about to attack Israel. And King Hezekiah has really already been told by Isaiah that God's going to deliver them. But the enemy does not want the children of Israel to believe the report of God. I'm here to tell you this morning, the devil does not want you to believe what this says. 
He doesn't want you to believe what God has already declared. And in Isaiah chapter 36, in verse 4, it says, Then the Rabshakeh, that's a word for a field commander, that was sent by the attacking king, said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? I want you to see the first thing the enemy this morning wants you to question is your confidence in God. He wants you to question how confident are you really? He's not afraid to look you in the eye and say, yeah, right. Do you really believe God's going to take care of you? Do you really believe God's going to meet your need? Do you really believe God's hearing you pray? Do you really believe that God is going to heal your sickness? Do you really believe that God is going to send you a husband or a wife? Do you really believe that God is going to reach your children? Where is this confidence of yours? I'm here to tell you something. The devil is a mocker. The devil will do everything he can to shake your confidence that you stand in. Not only does he question the confidence, in verse 5 he says, I say you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. He wants to question your strategy and your power to accomplish it. He says, oh, I know you have a plan. We, We know what your plan is. It's nothing but talk. That's what it is. It's just idle words. Your plan won't see you through. You won't stand for your God, and your God won't stand for you when the rubber hits the road. I'm telling you, you know what was really happening in this text? If you, if you, if you study out the context of what was really happening here was Assyria didn't want to go to war. They were going to. That was the plan. But they did not want to. They were a somewhat fearful of what might happen if they attacked. The Jewish people. And so they're doing everything they can to convince them. You don't want to fight this battle. Uh-uh. We, we are the tough guys. You don't want to mess with us. And they, the enemy was doing everything he could to talk God's people out of standing and saying, no, we'll just let God fight this battle for us. And he will question your confidence. He will question your strategy. He will question your power to get it done. He questions their power as a whole. Their unity in verse 8 when he says, Now therefore I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to put riders on them. You see, this is a mockery. What he's, what, here's what he says. We'll give you 2,000 horses. In other words, you don't have them. You need them. You don't even have what you need to get the job done. We'll give you the 2,000 horses. And then he throws in this sarcastic, if you even have enough men to ride them. You have that many people on your side? It's, it's, an, it's an attack to isolate. It's an attack to, to, that really shows that you don't have the power or numbers to get this thing done. You know, the devil wants you to feel that way, like you're all alone. That's what he wants you to feel. And I want to tell you it's one of the very important reasons to be committed to community and to be connected. As I already said this morning, I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad for being on vacation or, or happen to miss occasionally for anything else. 
But brothers and sisters, you get isolated and the devil will do everything he can to isolate you more, to keep you away from God's people. I want you to know something. Just hearing preaching isn't enough. There's something spiritual about being able to come and shake a hand and say, I love you. How's your week been? There's something about that that is needed and necessary to your Christian uh, life. And, and just hearing it or just watching uh, via Internet is not enough. We need to be connected to one another and we need to be reminded, I've got your back and you've got mine. I don't know how we're going to see it out of this thing, but I know that God does. And I'm going to stand with you. If you've got to crawl, I'm going to crawl with you. If you've got to run, we're going to run together. But we are in this thing till the end. We are not turning to the left. We're not turning to the right. We're not giving up. We're going to keep going the way that God has told us to go. In verse 14, they mock the leaders. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah, which was their king, deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. So now the enemy questions their confidence, their strategy, their power, and the people they trust to lead them. He says, You can't trust what Hezekiah says. I know Hezekiah says that that, that him and Isaiah have sought the face of the Lord, that God has said, but you can't trust nothing, he says. He isn't going to deliver you. He's not for you. And when the rubber hits the road, uh, he'll be protecting himself and you'll be left to die. The enemy is a mocker. He is. The enemy wants to discourage you from standing in your faith, from standing from, for God, for taking a, a, a settled commitment in your heart that we will not turn to the left or to the right, but we will serve God. And finally, in verse 18, the ultimate attack is on our God. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered its lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? I'm going to go ahead and read through verse 21. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Saravan? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hands? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. But they held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer them. We see the ultimate attack is on God. It starts with your confidence. You sure you got confidence that you're going to be okay? Oh, you've got a plan. Yeah, that plan's going to fail. It's nothing but words. Oh, you've got people that are that are uh, you can trust and know they won't be there for you. Oh, you've got leaders that tell you that, that God says you can't trust your leaders. And now ultimately, the point is you can't even trust God. I'm telling you, there's probably, to my knowledge, there's not anywhere in all of Scripture that you will find in one brief statement something that so well pictures what the enemy wants God's children to believe. He wants you to think it's hopeless, but I want you to know something. We have the book. We know he was just telling a fib, hoping to put fear in their hearts so they wouldn't go to war. That's what we know. But the truth is, they didn't know it at the time. They had no idea. There's a reason the Word of God says, forget not. Which brings me back to Psalm 103. 
This morning, I'm just going to preach for a few, few short more minutes on the thought, remember this. I just want you to remember some things this morning. Forget not all of His benefits. There are benefits to being a child of, of the Lord. There are benefits to being a child of the Lord. And before we talk about the benefits, let's just acknowledge there's also a battle. There's an enemy that wants to discourage us. We just looked at that enemy. We just looked at the fact that even as a child of God, sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes you've got to stand in faith. Sometimes you've just got to say, I know what God has said. And whether I feel it, whether I'm seeing it, whether I'm understanding everything I'm going through, I'm not going to turn to the left or the right. And I'm going to tell you that's not always easy this morning. That's easier to say than it is to do. But we've got to do it. Sometimes Christianity is hard. But brothers and sisters, there are benefits to the battle. There are benefits to being one of God's children who forgives all your iniquities. Who forgives all your iniquities. You know, that's the first thing that he mentions. There's a lot of other great things he mentions we're going to look at this morning. But the first and foremost and most important is that he forgives all of your iniquities. I'm here to tell you this something, something this morning. The word all is so precious in that statement. There's not just some sins that God can forgive. There's not just some wicked things you've done that God can forgive. But everything you've done, all that you've done, all of our iniquities. This morning I'm here to tell you that God forgives the iniquities of His children. He sees them no more. When He looks through the blood, He sees a child that is clean in His sight whose iniquities are no more. He forgives all of our iniquities. No matter what the devil wants to say this morning, I can look him in the eyes and I can tell him I stand clean in the sight of God. My sins are forgiven. I've got no guarantee what's going to happen here on this earth with my life. I've got no guarantee, devil, that I'm going to live till tomorrow. I've got no guarantee that the rest of my life is going to be easy. But I can guarantee that I'm going to live forever in the land of the living because all of my iniquities have been forgiven and there are benefits to being a child of the King. Don't forget it this morning. Remember this. All your iniquities are forgiven. Who heals all your diseases. All. All. You know, there's a lot of diseases we have. When, when we say diseases, we typically think of medical diseases. We typically think of stuff that you treat with medicine. But there's emotional diseases. Mental diseases. Physical diseases. He heals them all. We serve the God who has power, as it tells us in verse 19, His kingdom rules over all. There's not any particular area of problem that we face that God does not have authority to work in. There is no one single disease on earth that has come as a result of the fall that God cannot touch and control. He's the Lord that heals all 
of our diseases. I want you to know something this morning. I'm not just telling you words. What I'm telling you is the truth. It is the written Word of God. And may faith rise up in us again to remember that not only can He heal all of our iniquities and forgive all of our iniquities, but He can heal all of our diseases. There is nothing that our God cannot do. There is no circumstance that God cannot change. There is no thing that you've been through. There is no suffering that you've gone through. There is no sickness that you deal with that God cannot reach in with His magnificent healing hand and touch that area in your life and change you forevermore. He's the Lord who heals all of our diseases, who redeems your life from destruction. Remember this. Remember this. He redeems your life from destruction. Just remember this. He redeems us. I want to talk about life and destruction in a minute, but let's just talk about being redeemed. You know, to be redeemed means you've got to pay something. To redeem something does not mean that you steal it back. It means that you pay the price necessary to legally purchase the thing back into your possession. That's what it means to redeem something. He redeems your life. One of the things, principles that we're working with our children, just recently I was convicted on a lot of different things about finances and money and my responsibility as a father to teach my children how to handle money. And so for the most part I said, I'm not giving you any money anymore. I'm not joking. I'm telling the truth. But here's what I will do. I'm going to teach you how to work. And when you work, you will get paid for works, not allowance. I'm not giving you money because you're a child. You have to work. And your pay will be relative to your work. And then you can buy stuff with your own money. And I'm telling you something. My kids love it. But here's what we found. I mean, it's fascinating. We went to uh, a movie the other day. It took my kids at least five minutes to decide to buy anything. (laughs) Both of them bought one thing. No popcorn, no candy, and they bought the smallest drink on the menu. And they sipped on it slowly the entire show because there's no free refills unless you buy the big one. You see, spending their own money, it changes things. And what I've found is there becomes a, an element of ownership in the stuff they purchase. We make our kids, for example, they can spend a little bit of what they make on whatever they want, but they have to save some and they have to give some to church. I'm teaching them this. My daughter just bought her first purchase with her saved money, and it was a used bicycle from a garage sale. But it's a nice bicycle. She bought it with her own money. And here's what I can guarantee. She will take care of that thing. She bought it. Because there's ownership. Now you know the principle. The same is true about stuff that you work for. Stuff that you pay for. You did what it took to provide the payment so that you could have possession of that thing you wanted. He redeemed us. I mean, He paid the cost. Forget not the benefits. Remember this. You were redeemed by God. And because you were redeemed by God, 
There's a price on you that's special to God. You're not just one of His children that randomly came along. You weren't an accident. You were redeemed intentionally by the Maker of heaven and earth. He loves you with a perfect love and He paid the cost. And He takes ownership in you this morning. You are important to Him. And when the devil wants to discourage you, and when the devil wants you to think that life isn't worth living, and when the devil wants you to think that God's not hearing your prayers, and God's not involved in your life, and God's not concerned about what you're going through, you just remember, no, devil, He redeemed me. And the One who redeemed me and paid that awful cost on Calvary, He has ownership in me. And He paid the highest price ever paid for me. He loves me this morning. Amen. He redeems your life from destruction. From destruction. That's where we're headed. Without Him. Destruction. My life was destruction. But more importantly and more significant than the fact that my life was destroyed is the eternal destruction that laid ahead. Had He not redeemed my life. He didn't just redeem me, but what did He redeem me from? Destruction. You remember this this morning. Your God forgives all your iniquities. Your God heals all your diseases. Your God redeemed your life from destruction. He crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies your mouth with good things. He executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Sometimes we look at the atrocities in the world. We heard Jason tell us about one earlier and we need to pray that God intervenes there and we need to do everything within our power to help meet these needs and lend hands to those whom we can lend hands to. But we have confidence, brothers and sisters, in a wicked world that is controlled by a wicked enemy that our God executes righteousness and that in His time and His way and one day finally and forever He will eradicate all that is sin, all that is evil will be punished and the righteous God will stand on His righteous throne and He will execute righteousness and thank God I'm on His side this morning. Thank God I'm not on the other end. Thank God I'm not the one that He's going to stand there and execute righteousness upon. But I'm the one whom He will execute mercy and grace upon because He has made me His own this morning. Remember this. Remember this. In a world of chaos and busyness and summer's here and we've hit the ground running. It just helps sometimes to stop and remember this, don't it? The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in mercy. Thank God He's slow to anger. Thank God He's patient. That's what it means. He's slow to anger. He's patient with us. God is so patient. He's being patient with someone here this morning. Trying to let you know He loves you. Trying to let you know it doesn't pay to go the other direction. Trying to remind you that He has done everything and will continue to do everything in His power to pursue you and to be yours so that He can be yours so that He can be yours and you can be His. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. 
Thank God. You know, one of the things the devil will often do is, even though we didn't see it done in Isaiah 36, he'll remind us of our sins. He'll remind us that your God is a holy, righteous God who cannot look upon sin. And then he'll, he'll cause us to begin to feel like, well, maybe I'm distanced from God. This is where it's good to remember this. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, but according to His mercy and His grace. And when the devil leaps on your back and reminds you that at times your flesh nature takes over and you do things you shouldn't do, feel ways you shouldn't feel, sometimes treat people the way you shouldn't treat people. Brothers and sisters, when it happens, just tell them you're sorry. Just ask for forgiveness. Then go to God and tell God you're sorry and ask Him for forgiveness and rejoice in the fact that the blood covers it all and our God does not deal with us according to our sins, but according to His grace and mercy. Don't forget it this morning. Just remember this. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. If you need to know just how far your sins are, if you need to know how difficult is it for God to see your sins when He sees you through the blood, the psalmist says, David says, just remember this, as far as the east is from the west. There's no way to really... That's infinite is what that means. You can get on the equator, my brothers and sisters, and you can begin flying east as fast as you can get a jet to possibly fly. And you could fly for thousands and thousands of thousands of years east. And the west would never even dawn upon the horizon. That's the way that God has made the globe to work. And the psalmist, possibly not even fully understanding what that means, wrote down thousands of years ago as far as the east is from the west. That's how far God has cast away your iniquities. Remember this this morning. God sees them no more. Thank God. That's why there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He sees them no more. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. Verse 19, all and His kingdom rules over all. His kingdom rules over all. His kingdom rules over all. We have to understand that the Bible tells us that His ways are higher than our ways. You know what that means? It means we cannot fully, completely understand Him. It means that in God's great scheme of eternity, from the beginning to the end, there are things that are working themselves out. That, for example, none of us ever would have come up with the magnificent plan of the cross. None of us. And on that awful day, when Jesus breathed His last breath, and they pierced Him with His side, and the earth was in groaning in it, and there were earthquakes and darkness covered the land, there's not one of us sitting there that day that would have said, God just won. But see, God knew. He knew. 
He was working it out all the time. It wasn't until three days later when the tomb was, when the stone was rolled away and Jesus came up out of that grave that we began to understand God was in divine control all the time. This is what Jesus meant when He said that no one takes His life from Him, but He lays it down willingly that He would raise Himself back up on the third day. Only then did those statements begin to make sense. And the Word of God says His ways are higher than our ways. We can't understand it all. I do not pretend that there are not atrocities happening in this world. There are. There has always been since the fall. And I do not pretend to understand how in each and every situation God is in control. And to say that God is in control is not to say that God is causing evil to happen. I wouldn't even go so far as to say that God is letting the evil happen. I don't even feel real good about that particular statement. But here's what I know from the depths of my soul without any hesitation that the kingdom rules over all. That even when it looks like everything is shaking around us as Isaiah looked to heaven, where was God? He was still on His throne. I want you to know this morning, brothers and sisters, the world at times may look bleak, but remember this, our King rules over all. As our worship team comes this morning to prepare a song of invitation, I thought about this statement. You don't have to pull it up, but in 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6, King David has been running for his life for a while. It looked like he was starting to build a faithful group of followers. It looked like there would eventually bring the downfall of Saul. And him and his men were off to some particular event, a battle most likely. And they come back to their village, which was secret for the most part. And in 1 Samuel chapter 30, it tells us that when they came back, they saw their village ravished, burning, on fire, their wives and their children had been kidnapped. They were gone. The Bible says that David's men wept bitterly. If I remember the phrase right, it even says they wept so bitterly that they could weep no more. In other words, they cried till there were no more tears to cry. It's a devastating situation. And there's one simple sentence in 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6 that says, And David encouraged himself in the Lord. I love that statement. I wonder what he did. He encouraged himself. That's what it says. Your version might say he strengthened himself. It's the same thing. He encouraged himself. I wonder what he said that encouraged itself. How do you encourage yourself when you come home and your house is burning and your wife is gone and your children are kidnapped and you don't know where they are and you don't even know yet if you're going to be able to get them back? How do you encourage yourself in such a time as this? It doesn't really tell us how he did it. It just tells us that he did it. And if you read the story, 
they find out where they are and they go back and they take back everything the enemy had stolen from them. But in a moment of despair, he encouraged himself. I don't know if that's when he wrote Psalm 103 or not, but I believe that something very similar to what he pinned down in Psalm 103 is probably what he did. He probably got down on his face before God and he said, I will not forget who you are. I will not forget that you called me. I will not forget that you set me free from the, the lion and from the bear. I will not forget that you were there when I faced Goliath. I will not forget that you are the God who forgives all sins, who heals all our diseases, who is in control of all pain. And somehow, somewhere deep in his soul, he began to be encouraged. He began to get strength. And somehow he went to the rest of that downhearted group of men and said, get up. It's time to quit crying. This war is not over. We have not been defeated. It's not as bad as it looks. We're going to go take back what the enemy has destroyed. But he had to encourage himself. And I pray this morning that you encourage yourself. If you're discouraged this morning, encourage yourself. If you're discouraged this morning, strengthen yourself. I pray that somehow, some way, my preaching has strengthened you to don't look, just look at all that's wrong, but look at all that He is. Remember this. Remember this. Remember this. Father, move all across this room. Help us this morning to encourage ourselves by looking to You. He encouraged Himself in the Lord. God, I pray this morning that whoever's heart is downcast and heavy with burdens this morning, God, that they would just run to You and remember Psalm 103 and say, Oh, soul of mine, forget not all of His benefits. In Jesus' name, we remember You this morning.